Welcome back to the Lantern Rouge Cycling Podcast on this Wednesday evening for all of you in Europe and America. This is our La Flèche Wallon men's recap. If you're watching on YouTube, or the combined men and women's recap on all podcast players. I know Apple announced something in their slightly dystopian announcements, I always find, actually, uh, about podcast players, but I haven't checked that out yet. Anyway, La Flèche Wallon, it's... I'm not going to insult your intelligence. It's all about the murder hoy at the end, if I'm honest. But for completeness, it's 192 Ks. They do the mur, a lap of it before, which crests with 32 Ks to go. And then the last climb, 1,300 meters, 9.5%. But then the real nasty section is 900 meters at 12% with 25% ramps or something obscene. There's not actually like the that many hard climbs. Otherwise, throughout this race, Liège is harder, and that's the problem with it. But, um, yeah, are you surprised, Benji, that it's under 200Ks? Do you think the solution for flesh, like would you add more climbs, more Ks to make it 250, 230, another hour of racing to maybe make the last 20 more exciting? I think that there's a few aspects to this. You first have the fact that there's no – real other rains like this on the calendar where it's the entire parkour basically preparing for the final wall and throughout the season itself we know that we have quite a bit of hill races that are like 250 kilometers or are 200 kilometers that have hills all around that get a different kind of finish so it's a question whether you want every single race to look relatively the same or be as hard and not give an opportunity to riders that could perhaps do better on parkours like like this one, where it's very stressful for the entire day, but not so difficult that you can't be at the foot of the final hill. So I do see the beauty in something like La Flèche Wallon, but it's just not good for the viewing pleasure, I think, because let's be real, I think the majority of people know that once you look at La Flèche Wallon, you can just basically wait until the last five-ish kilometers and you're 99% sure that nobody else is going to take the victory that attacked beforehand. There's always a possibility that someone attacks on the second or third last hill, but it's just very unlikely to happen with the brutality of the final hill and the way everybody just sprints up it in the end. So, yeah, that's kind of my take on it. I think the last breakaway winner was in 2003, so it's been a long time between breakaway wins. But... Before we get into the full recap, I want to mention our show partner, Lacol, the Arden Classics. Well, we've got our last one coming up on the weekend, but the Cobble Classics are already done and dusted. But if you want to check out Lacol's new ambassador kit with Johan Museo, they've brought that out. They've posted a story about it, and the link is in the description below about what the Classics and Flan- cycling in Flanders means to Johan Museo, so I'd encourage you to go and check that out if you want to read through that as well. There's also Lacole's Level Up Strava Challenge. So if you complete 420 minutes across three weeks, if you join this Strava Challenge, you receive a £50 reward upon completion to spend at Lacole. And one person will win £2,500, which infinite Australian dollars of Lacole Summer Kit. So go and check that out through Lacole's Instagram if you're keen. But the favourites for today's stage, or race rather, Roglic, Julian Alaphilippe won it twice before, Pidcock, obviously, 
one of the best classic striders already. But the big news, Benji, UAE and Pogaccio out of the race before he even started because of a positive test, which Pogaccio and UAE are adamant that it's a false positive for one of their riders and the team members. So they were out despite that rider. I think it might have been Ulysses, correct me if I'm wrong, Benji, uh, who tested positive for COVID and then he did like three tests afterwards, all negative. He tested negative in the days previously, non-symptomatic. So Pagacha didn't seem particularly pleased about that. Anyway, there was a fairly large break. No one was too concerned about it. No favourites in it. No like massive talents like um, Maori Van Seven last year. <laughs> they have it in check two minutes. They do the first Mur and bring it down to 150, and Maori attacked Benji. Did you expect him to do that? Because I thought it was like the most bang-on, likely things to happen in this race is Van Seven on attacking obscenely early. Yeah, I was expecting something throughout the race. I wasn't expecting him to wait until the last moment because we know that that team has Alaphilippe. They're going to use Alaphilippe for the final mur de Huy so they can try and use their other candidates to try and just spice up the race beforehand, make sure that our teams need to chase their riders without really too much problems. Because, well, if you send Van Seven on up the road, or even the likes of an Honore, for example, you're you're forcing other teams to pace, but you're not necessarily losing a pawn of your game on the Mudehui, because we all know you don't need too many domestiques on the Mudehui in the end, because usually riders take it on on their own because of the positioning advantage that it gives. So, yeah, I think that it was a, a clear-cut thing to happen. I don't think it was going to go anywhere, despite me being <laughs> a, a large fanatic of Belgian young cyclists. Um, it's uh, Yeah, it was cool to see. And I think after after Amstel, I think that he's gaining a lot of following internationally and people are really liking how he rides very offensively. Yeah. And I love how he said after Amstel, the following sentence, uh, do you think you're going to be a co-leader in the next Ardennes race, for example. And he said, well, I don't really care. I just want to ride. And I just want to ride in between and see where I land. <laughs> and I like that because it's like the the most non-calculated racing we've seen in a while. And it's the same thing with Pugacar last year where he was very offensive when he's behind. And that kind of stuff sparks interest in, I think, in cycling itself. And if those kind of riders make the sport more interesting, then a lot of more uh, people will enjoy the sport i think and he did prompt a few attacks i think uh geshka attacked tagagenhard and another in the australia got in that group but uh, i think there was a crash as well with pidcock behind at this same time and gagenhard was pulling but then pidcock back got back into the peloton there was 50 seconds for the five riders in front even philip gilbert threw an attack in benji any <laughs> case to go 25 seconds and you already know it's going to be murder hoy bunch time because you need like 50 seconds at the base of the mood if you've been in the break and as well they're going to bring it back even earlier than that because it's not a long race it's not that hard typically and all these teams have so many domestiques in the last 20 kilometers that's what makes the big difference and they just keep it so tight and bring everything back Tim Wellens tried to attack with 11.5 k's to go and Carapaz tried to follow him. So Quickstep and Ineos had tried to throw a few riders 
up the road. Roglic didn't really have too many people to bring it back apart from Omen. He did a decent job actually bringing Carapaz back. Carapaz attacked again, and we'll talk about his result later and how well he did. Lamartink was the last rider, I think, up the road. Two Ks to go, 11-second gap, close right at the base, just on cue. And Quickstep attacked with Honoré with 1,300 metres to go. And, I mean, you probably got time. Go and look at the last K on Tour de France ASO's YouTube channel will be up soon. You know, take you three minutes. But interesting from Quickstep attacking like that with Honoré rather to put Ineos and Cosnefra and Azure Desert Citroën under pressure. Ari was dropped and the pace came out of the race a little bit, it seemed. Kwiatkowski was pacing. Israel had had a rider pacing for Mike Woods, their contender for today. And then with 400 metres to go, Alberti was out of position. We'll talk about him in a second. 400 metres to go, Rogla, who was in good position. And Jumbo did a good job today, generally. I thought they did a really good job for Roglic, keeping him in fantastic position. He accelerates like we always see him do a little bit early. 400 to go. Still a long time on the murder hoy. 400 metres. He's got Alaphilippe and Valverde looking at him. Alaphilippe doesn't react. No movement at all. Doesn't even get out of the saddle. Just let's Pidcock close that gap a little bit. Alaphilippe's got Valverde on his wheel. Let's Pidcock bring him to 270. Roglic has got a decent gap on them at this point. It's his patented 100-metre big sprint. Then Alaphilippe begins a slow bridge, gradual bridge to Roglic, not panicking at any moment, always under control and... Clearly, we can see him clawing him back. He's got Valverde on the wheel, drops him off the wheel with 125 to go. And then we see him in Roglic's wheel with 75 metres to go as they're just cresting the steep section at the end and it flattens off. And we know it's over for Roglic, Alaphilippe kicking out of his wheel. And it's more a marathon, even though it's a short climb. Alaphilippe just able to hold that same speed and power right until the finish and Roglic fading. Alaphilippe coming first, Roglic second, Valverde third, I think Woods fourth or Bagui fourth and Woods fifth. Benji, Roglic, do you think he was surprised Valverde was there? He seemed kind of shocked and then tried to re-kick with 50 metres to go. And if so, do you actually think that made a difference? You mean Alaphilippe, right, not Valverde? Or Yeah, sorry, when, when Roglic... Had Alaphilippe come up yeah. next to him on the left-hand side. Yep. Uh, I'm not better. sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm not sure it's a surprise necessarily. I think that he knows that if he goes so early on the Medui, which to some is arguably a mistake, because I bet every single rider before this year is going to say, oh, if you attack early on the Medui, then you're basically uh, – putting the nail in your own coffin. They're going to counter you and they're going to come past you in the moment that they launch their kick on the rather uh, just the point where it goes from very steep to not super steep. That's where Alaphilippe usually launches. And today he had to go a bit earlier to launch towards Roglic. Um, I think that he probably was not surprised that Alaphilippe was there. He was probably hoping that he wouldn't be there, obviously. But... Um, yeah, I think in total, the topic I just want to bring up is did Roglic go too early or not? And there's a few aspects to this. Like I just mentioned, on the Mudahui, you're typically waiting until it is at that point where 
everybody usually launches and Alaphilippe usually launches. A few years ago, Alaphilippe lost the race by launching a bit too early. And today he had to go early because Roglic went way earlier than everybody. And that forces the others into actually responding because they know that if Roglic makes that move, if he gaps them so much on that steeper section, then they need to find some hella crazy kick to get back to him and pass him on the last section. But um, on the opposite side, you can also say, perhaps this is the best thing that Roglic could do. Perhaps going early is the best thing that Roglic can do because he does not have the sprint acceleration against Alaphilippe on the last section. But I would counter to that. We don't actually know that well because we've seen them ride against each other in a punching way on Liège last year. And we saw it as well on the World Champs. On the World Champs, we had them both having ridden the Tour de France just before, right? Was that Tour de France? Yes, it was Tour de France. Yes. And as a consequence, you had Rolich who went all out in the Tour de France, Alaphilippe who was preparing for the World Champs throughout the Tour de France. That was his goal. He said that. The first part, after that first victory, he said that he was focusing on the World Champs. So we don't know if Roglic would have also prepared for the World Champs, how close he would have gotten on that final punch and that final kick where Alaphilippe got away. And I think it's interesting to think about because we don't know what would happen if they launch both at the same time on the Mudawi. I dare to put my money on the fact that I just don't know and that it could be either one of them because I would really like to see Roglic and Alaphilippe launch from that corner, the last corner, at the same time and see where it lands. Because people are saying, some people are saying that Alaphilippe would outkick Roglic. From the history of Alaphilippe, that's possible. But we haven't seen him against Roglic like that many occasions. And I think it could be different than people are thinking. And I think that we're underestimating Roglic. And I think Roglic might be underestimating himself here on this finish because... I'm well, scared of what he can do. The man launched early and he still almost yeah, won. Yeah, I don't think he went 300 meters too early, but just a little bit too early. I think that's inarguable when you look at his speed, like how he slowed down and was kind of cooked in the last 30 to 50 meters. Uh, so it's not like he jumped incredibly early for him and what he can do. But just a little bit early, and that was the difference between him and Alaphilippe. And Benji, I'm looking on Twitter. Apparently, we have a climbing record. Yeah, they did 2.41 for the Murder Hoy. Six Ooh. seconds quicker than Hershey Wait. last year. Nine is... seconds quicker than Alaphilippe last year, uh, in 2019. Yes? I think that's the same amount, 2.41, that Valverde did in his, uh, his not-so-clean year. Exactly the same time back in the day. 2014. Uh, yeah. He was clean yeah. then. Was he? Okay. I'm getting the years wrong then. <laughs> but uh, that does <laughs> that's, mean that's that. Post, is post it, Puerto, mate. Is it a climbing record then? Well, in, in principle, sort of, because it's a harder course now than apparently when Valverde did 241. Okay. Yeah. So it's more impressive uh, what they did. And that was largely down to Roglic, but yeah, crazy level. And it goes to show like, we're like, oh, maybe Roglic went a little bit early, but <laughs> in almost any other year, 
and a lot of other eras he would have won <laughs> so by like five seconds. So he's crazy, crazy level puncher, Roglic. Um, super impressive from him. One thing I want to mention, Benji, is speaking of Valverde, he should have been disqualified in my view. He came third. That's you know a classic podium out of Woods and Bargui. Top 10, by the way, Pitcock, Gudu, Chavez, Carapaz, Sharkman. Third, he was so far out of position. We said it was a problem in Amstel. I think in my video I was like, oh, way out of position, Valverde. Yep. Then he managed to, super impressive on the last Kalberg, that he even managed to get into G1 for a time. And today he was so far out of position again with 600 metres to go and he used the sidewalk to move up the right-hand side. No other riders did. He was behind Pitcock beforehand, move up, used the side work, sidewalk and moved up to about third wheel behind Alaphilippe. And when he came back off the sidewalk, he nearly chopped Pidcock and nearly crashed because he was going into a space that wasn't there. And the rules do not mandate that you are disqualified just because you go onto the sidewalk. But in serious cases, or if an infringement offers an advantage, the commissaires may relegate the rider to last place or eliminate or disqualify them. It offered an advantage. He only went on that sidewalk to move up spots because his team weren't good enough to keep him at the front before the murder hoy. And it affected Pidcock's race. It definitely gave him an advantage. And Benji, how surprised, a.k.a. not surprised at all, are you that he didn't get sanctioned? I'm not surprised at all, and... To be honest, if you're thinking about it, I think that it's also just not a very effective penalty because in this one-day race, why would he care that he gets DQ'd if he doesn't win anyway? It's Valverde. He's got plenty of a history anyway. The thing that would hurt him the most is the fine and the UCI ranking points, but he also won't care about those, to be honest. UCI ranking points, perhaps. Valverde <laughs> sometimes cares about the UCI ranking if he's close to the top. But... um yeah. And if he doesn't move up, he can't win because yeah. he'd be so deep. I'd do so it as well. No, with, with this penalty, <laughs> I'd do it as well. Like, why not? Yeah. You're choosing between <laughs> 99% not being sanctioned and improving your position or staying behind and definitely losing. So it's a no-brainer for him to do it. It's just <laughs> one of those things. I think Roe got penalized for it at Flanders a few years ago, but yep. generally they only penalize you if you actually endanger another rider but or a spectator, but he kind of really chopped Pitcock or another rider. So, yeah, that was a bit of a shame. But Alaphilippe Benji, I think I was saying he didn't look at the same on the Kalberg. You know, he didn't have that snap back today, climbing, climbing record. What do you think of Philly Age? Do you think he's just a mer flesh specialist, his third win? And or do you think he's as the hot favourite for Liège like he was maybe last year? The Munahui is perfect for him, I think. I think that he is obviously the best puncher on paper, I'd say, in the world. Philippe. And that is solely because we haven't seen Roglic do like the full Ardennes. Let's say that Roglic ends up dropping everybody on LBL on Laredut. Well, that might change. But overall, throughout the entire season, once Alaphilippe is on a star list with a hill in the end, 
with roughly 1.5k of climbing. We know that he's likely going to end up in the uh, in the uh, winning seat of that if he's well placed and so forth. Obviously, but punching wise, he's one of the best. Roglic, it's it's kind of difficult to like post him next to that because we're used to all these years where all these GC riders would never ride the likes of an Ardennes or only Liège, and then they'd like drop with 20k to go because they're not in form yet. But we have seen such a change with the Slovenian gods that came in and basically uh, threw everything around. And we saw that at Strade with Pogacar being strong there, Bernal being strong there. We saw that with Bernal at the Italian Classics a few years ago, but also with, well, Roglic in this situation, Liège last year as well, although that was a different calendar. I think that we're seeing such a difference in how these riders focus on more than just the tour. Pogacar said it as well a few uh, a few weeks ago. There's more to the season than the Tour de France. <laughs> it's always like, oh no, oh no. <laughs> but uh, like all in all, I think that it's beautiful to see because there is more to cycling than the Tour de France. And many mainstream viewers probably have like the Tour de France and as their highest regarded thing. And people that don't really, that aren't really like the mainstream cycling following, but the ones that just watch cycling once and so on, those are the ones that probably only watch those races or local races. And yeah, it's lovely that it's becoming more popular to watch more than just the Tour de France. And I like that. Yeah, maybe not flesh though. Might not be the best. <laughs> the last two kilometers, okay? <laughs> the best alternative, <laughs> Jesus. All right, that was our men's flesh on recap. If you're listening on podcast players, stay tuned for the women's recap coming up now. But otherwise... If you're listening on YouTube, like the video down below or leave us a review on podcast players. But here's the women's recap. We just watched the women's flesh were on. All the favourites were there, as you'd expect. Elisa Longo-Borghini, Mariana Vos, Ludwig. Who else? Van der Breggen, Vollering, Nivea Doma. So many strong riders and strong teams, particularly SD Works. Their profile for the women's race, 130 kilometers long, and they do two laps of the Mur. So the Mur de Hoy defines Flesh Wallon. They do the first lap with 98 k's done and 32 kilometers to go. Then they have two climbs after that, the Côte de Rafe and the Côte de Chemin de Gouze. Both of them are not that steep. The first one's 2.5 k's at 5%. The second one is... 1.6 k's at 6%, crest 10 k's from the finish, and then they do the move, which is 1 k at 11.5%, but it's got steeper paths in there, really steep pinches. Um, I think, what is it, like 20% Benji, nasty road surface, 18% sections, it's nasty, particularly at the end. Anna van der Breggen's won the race six times in a row, and uh, <laughs> she didn't look as good at Amstel, but we'll see how she went today. Live coverage started with about 40Ks to go. There was a break up the road with Chabby, Anna Henderson, I think, for Yumbo Visma, and Lucinda Brand for Trek Segafredo. Why was that? Sometimes me and you gloss over the break, Benji, but why is those three riders or two of those riders actually important from a tactical perspective that they're up the road with a 30-second lead? Well, when it comes to the teams that are in women's cycling, we know that Trek Segafredo was one of the... Uh heavy uh, competitors of SD Works, who is not in that front group. Jake Segafredo with Lucinda Brand in that front group means that SD Works behind needs to set something up 
in the peloton needs to start working, set people at the front of the peloton to try and keep that gap relatively low to keep the race under control. It doesn't need to be, I don't know, like more than 45 to a minute, the gap, but they can keep it roughly at that because we know that if they come to the Mudawi, eventually it should in the end be uh, relatively doable to catch a breakaway of like 30-ish seconds with the likes of a, a Van der Bregen or a Van Vleuten on different teams really mashing it up on that wall. But yeah, that's really the reason. They have riders in there that are from teams that are competing with SD Works. So they're trying to get SD Works to spend riders to try and control the peloton. But in that process, they obviously spend riders as well. But yeah, that's... Uh, yeah, but this race, uh, it doesn't pawn. matter so much. Yeah. Because how much can Lucinda Brand help you on the move? If you're released along you're with right. Alghini, that's why it's such a good tactic. And that seemed to be Trek's tactic, which was really good today. Um, it was mentioned after the race that SD Works made some tactical mistakes during the race by riders on SD Works. And I think one of them was letting two riders from their main rivals go into the break. The second, I think, maybe they weren't referring to it. The second, I think, is they do the first, the, uh, first round of the Moor no real, just some people dropping off the back, but all the contenders are still there. The break is still 20 seconds to those three riders. Got uh, Canuel, I think, Canadian national champ, pacing for SD Works a lot. Then Nee Fisher Black afterwards on the flatter section. Then they got the second, or oh, third to last climb, rather, two and a half Ks, 5%. And SD Works start forcing really hard on that climb. We've got 23 Ks to go, 22 Ks to go chasing back this break, which was at 20 seconds, 23 seconds. And honestly, those riders are going to lose 50 to a minute on the move to the contenders anyway. So maybe not 50, but yeah, a lot of <laughs> a lot of time. And they're forcing to bring it back at 20Ks to go. I think uh, Mulan did. Brought it back, or really close. Got it down to five seconds. They were inside just over the crest of that shallow gradient but longish climb. And I'm thinking, why are they bringing the break back at 20Ks to go? That's feeding into Trek's strategy, and it did, because then they Mullen pulled off, gap was five seconds, and then uh, Ruth Winder, winner of Provence Pale, very strong rider in the last month or so, she attacked, she counted for Trek, going past that break, which had been brought back with Cinder Brand, and uh, Henderson had been dropped, and then Shabby tried to follow her, but didn't quite get on her wheel. So more problems for SD Works. Again, those Trek riders, are they going to need that much use on the mood itself for Lisa Longaborghini? Not really. And now they're forcing SD Works to chase again. A fresher rider going up the road. She got a 36, 40-second gap on the peloton, which was not able to bring her back before the mood. SD Works are having to pace a lot. They burnt all their riders. And then they get onto the last climb with 12Ks to go. Annemiek van Vleuten, who this isn't her exact finale that pr she would prefer. She prefers going on a longer climb from further out, one would think. She attacks on the second to last climb with 12Ks to go, blows away all the other domestics. We only have the contenders left. The only team with two riders is following an under van der Bregen. Van Vleuten doesn't catch Ruth Winder, but she brings it back to 25 seconds. She stops her action because everyone's on her wheel. And in this group, we have, as I said, Volering under Van der Bregen, Ludwig, Mavi Garcia, Lisa Longoborghini, Nivia Doma, Juliette Labou, and 
Nandroyden. And at that point, Benji, with Anna van der Breggen having not looked good at Amstel, working for Vollering, what did you think was the play for SG Works? Because Vollering had already been trying to chase down moves. Yeah, I think that at that point, it was relatively clear to me that they were going to go for a van der Breggen 40 all out uh, seven times in a row here. Because if you have Vollering already chased down moves and also attack, well, I'm not sure if you can call that a chase thing, but she counterattacked someone as well a bit earlier. So she was doing quite a bit of work, and that's honestly kind of because of that move of Molan Pasio a bit earlier. Molman made that attack, and that is basically reducing their numeric advantage to two riders. And with two riders, you have to choose. If you have riders like Volring and Van der Bregen to potentially, yeah, candidates to win this race, then you have to choose one or the other at that point to try and fix damage you've done that way. And it looks like they chose Volring as a domestique from that point. They countered with her. They ended up pacing down with her as well throughout the entire last uh, 10-ish kilometers because nobody else would take over. It's only logical that other teams see that as they were just pushing Volring as a domestique forward, they're going to be like, oh, yeah, just go ahead. Go ahead, take take the front. Yeah. You can do it. <laughs> and Van der Breggen's once six times. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> you're not going to sacrifice yourself to bring her to the foot of the mood, especially like great work from Trek, by the way. I have to say they yeah. played the race as well as they could tactically. And But anyway, as Benji said, volering pacing, sacrificed herself. Obviously, at this point, we'd realise, like, they're not stupid. Obviously, Van der Breggen was either feeling better than at Amstel where she'd been sick a couple of weeks ago, or at Amstel, they were just giving Vollering an opportunity. She, and we knew, when she had, even though they hadn't brought Winder back, by the base of the Moor, they had her at 11 seconds, maybe less. The first 400 metres of the Moor are about 6 7%. It only kicks up in the last 900 metres. Vollering paces really hard at the base of that climb. Eventually, Spratt moves up. We're onto the base of the Moor proper with 900 metres to go. Volering's clearly run out of steam and we've got all the contenders here, except for Voss. We should have said, by the way, Voss was dropped when Van Vloen attacked with yeah. 10Ks to go, but she wasn't really, we didn't think of her as a contender anyway for this race. Sprat goes through the middle and then under Van der Breggen, just like last year, she wanted to ride this full Moor as hard as possible at her pace, moves up on the right-hand side as she looks at it and just starts pacing, drops, I think, everyone except Longo <laughs> Borghini and Nivia Doma straight away. Van Vleuten is trying to claw back to her, but pops pretty quickly. Ludwig's gone yep. straight away. Somewhat surprising, Benji, given that she came second last year, I think, Vollering third. Anna van der Breggen doing her thing, pacing, eventually drops Elisa Longoborghini, whilst Nivia Doma's moved up into second wheel and is looking good, looking sprightly. She's edging up, almost half-wheeling under Van der Breggen, who's pretending that she's not even there. She came, she's looking good on the Kalberg, or the strongest on the Kalberg at Amstel Gold Race, and these two women, I'd encourage you to go and watch the last kilometre in the fourth <laughs> you can. It, you know, it's, it's incredible. Side by side, half-wheeling each other all up this climb. Nivia Doma getting into Anna van der Breggen's space. It reminded me of uh, like a 5,000-meter or 10,000-meter race, like an Olympic final when the runners all getting in each other's space, getting their elbows 
underneath each other. Nuvia Doma gets to last 400 metres, starts to edge past under Varnabregan. Are we thinking, is she about to dethrone the Queen of Flesh Wallon? Moves tries to take the last left-hander with 250 to go on the inside, pushes Varnabregan wide, but then Varnabregan has a second kick with 180 metres to go. She, We knew, I thought, she was holding something back. She knows how to pace this climb and kicks past Nuvia Doma, gaps her, looks back, almost can't believe it again, and wins by four or five bike lengths plus arms aloft for her seventh and final <laughs> flesh on victory. Nuvia Doma second, Elisa Longaborghini pipping Van Leuten for third. Do you, do, you, do you enjoy that race, Benji, the finale? Even though it's, it sounds predictable, it was actually – there's a lot of tension from my from my perspective. Yeah, I think so as well. I think that it's partially due to the fact that we saw that uh, attack by Molman a bit earlier, Ashley Molman, because that basically forced the race to be more open. They couldn't control the race after that move. And Rufinder getting away, they had to kind of improvise behind. They had to choose a different strategy to try and catch Rufinder. The gap was around 30 seconds for a bit. So it was quite quite intense at a certain point. I was like, we're going to have to dig into this uh, gap quite a bit now because otherwise, if she's got 45 seconds at the foot of the Murdehui, then it's going to be relatively close. But in the end, it wasn't close. And uh, we saw a, uh, a really nice final. We uh, didn't see an all-out domination on, on the Murdehui, I think, in my opinion. Even Oma, we, I, f- I feel like she's doing really well this season. I think we've already seen that in Amstel. But I think what is key on this on this finish on the Murdehui is that she always, well, Van der Breggen always attacks on basically the same moment on the climb. She gets past that corner that kings the road to the finish line. And a bit after that, that's where she puts that acceleration. I think that we saw her competitor today do it a bit earlier. And I think that might have cost it quite a bit. But on the other end, I think that it's also better because Van der Breggen and uh, and you would all against each other on this finish. I don't know what would have happened if they entered the last 50 meters next to each other. I think that it, um, I think that Van der Breggen has a tiny bit more acceleration. We see, uh, Cash always on this, on this high end gear and, uh, or low gear. Oh my God. I always put him the other way around. You know what I mean? <laughs> on the big ring. <laughs> and, uh, I think that's kind of the thing there where, that's potentially the reason why Kasha decided to go a bit early on the midway. But in the end, I think uh, I think it's a pretty great race. I really enjoyed it. It opens up sooner than the men's race, most likely, because I, I do expect the men's race to be a midway central once again. Uh, last year, we yeah. had an early attack of Unsaven on there, but I don't see that happening this year, but I could be wrong. But we're talking about this after the men's section on the podcast, but we recorded this beforehand, so this is just confusing right now. But um, yeah. Well, that's a good or, point. Yeah. This, I think this is a good example of where the profile, even though it's similar, much more exciting women's race than a typical men's flesh will on, yeah. which is basically 185 Ks, then a hill test on the motorway <laughs> for a couple of minutes. Yep. So this, and in terms of, you know, Valverde, he's been dominating flesh, Thunderbird's been dominating flesh, but it was different today. The way it opened up, as Benji said, was really exciting. And I thought Avesti worked stuff to the trek, played a masterful tactical hand. 
Is Van Vleuten going to drop everybody? It was a great race. Really enjoyed it. And I'm excited for Liège this weekend. Maybe we should talk about that for a second, Benji. Different sort of race, Van der Breggen said in the interview afterwards, well, if I want to win Liège, I have to go earlier because i got no sprint and it's a flattish fish finish. Who do you like for Liège, Baston, Liège? I like Nivea Doma. Hmm. She's got I'm, a breakthrough. I think I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to say, uh, is Grace Brown, Brown riding LBL? Because I yeah, think I might be, be uh, rooting for a, a longer solo from her on this end. Like she last year, be. but without uh, Lizzie Dignan in front of her. So <laughs> basically yeah. in that format. But like all in all, LBL is a different race. It's It's going to open up sooner. It's going to have more attrition throughout the race itself and i think that we saw that last year and i think it's going to be a similar race format this year and i i I like liege in this in the current form i i didn't really adore the codon finish of a few years ago it was special but i think that this kind of changes it and it doesn't all need to have a hill in the last two kilometers it makes it interesting to have it open up earlier as well and definitely the hills beforehand with a lot of dutenso flow definitely a do damage so uh i i like this uh i like this part well but another thing i wanted to bring up is um yes i think that i haven't done the mouth but i think longo borghini is back in the women's world tour uh ranking shirt so another purple shirt on our shoulders in nice. the next race i could be wrong on the calculations but it was just after the race so uh bear with me here but um apparently like they, they do seem to like have some prestige in that in women's cycling. And that's something we don't have in men's cycling, really, when it comes to the UCI ranking. Basically, everybody in the in the men's UCI ranking is like, oh, we don't care about it until they're winning it. And then they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I won yeah. the UCI men's ranking. Well, if there was a year. jersey attached to it, they'd care. Yeah. I, I think, think in the past, uh, we had a, a World Cup shirt for, yeah, yeah. for classic races or something, something like that. That was awesome. I like it. Yeah. I think it's great having – I don't know why Voss, when she wears it, it's pink and ELB, it's purple. Uh, I don't know if I'm missing something, but um, <laughs> maybe I'm colorblind. But, yeah, I, I really like it and it makes sense. It's like some an extra competition to fight for and a rider who's consistent throughout the season and races a lot, which they all do anyway. You know, they deserve it. Yeah. And, yeah, I really like it. And you saw – ELB, she just pipped Van Vleuten for third. Maybe, I don't know how much of an effect that has on the points. Um, but, yeah, I thought it was a great race today. And I can't wait for Liège on the weekend. We'll be doing a Liège preview, so we might give our more thorough thoughts in that on probably dropping on Friday. But that's all from us on the podcast today. We hope you enjoyed it. And we'll see you with that Liège preview, as I mentioned, on Friday. If you want to support the podcast, you can always like the YouTube video or share it. If you're watching on YouTube or if you're listening on podcast players, leave us a review on your podcast player. It's very helpful. We're trying to get to 1,000 reviews. But we've also got our Ko-Fi link in the description below should you wish to directly support us. But thanks, as always. It's been a great month and a half or two months of racing so far. And we'll see you in the weekend. Ciao.